Romans chapter 12, we're going to pick up in our study there, but I want to back up to last week, and I want to clarify things um, a little bit, um, not to change anything I said, but, but to clear up. We look, we're in chapter 11, in verse 27, we were talking about context of the Scriptures, how context are used, and how many times Scriptures get misused. And he says in verse 27 of chapter 11, For this is my covenant unto them. When I shall take away their sins. That, that is the covenant. That, that means it's never going to go away. That is a promise that God will never break that he made there. He says concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Verse 27, this is my covenant. When I shall take away their sins. That is an eternal promise that we can bring over into the new testament we can rest assured that when god washes away our sins they're gone he's not going to bring them back up he's not going to going to call back and make another mistake oh there you go again and bringing that up when he washes away our sins they are separated as far as the east is from the west and our name is written in the lamb's book of life it will not be erased that that is the promise that we have in in eternal life I talked about how some people use verse 29 about the gift and the calling of God without repentance um, and, and how some people use that out of context to say that, well, if a man's called to preach and he could never lose that call to preach. And I know their qualifications to preach. If you ever read 1 Timothy, you read Titus. You, if you read, through, actually, you can read a good bit in both of the Timothys. Paul covered some. But there are details given there in Timothy and Titus about the office of the bishop in the office of the deacon. They're not suggestions. They're, they're qualifications that are in the Word of God. So what I can clearly read and see is that a man can disqualify himself from the pulpit. Um, so to say that the gift and the calling of God is without repentance, that would be to say that that call could never be taken away. It can be. As I told you last week, if I went back into riotous living, being who I used to be, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor and God wouldn't have me. He'd get me out of this pulpit if he had to kill me. But he's not going to have somebody living in the world standing there and, and be two-faced, two-fronted, go here and put it out. So, but I, here's what I want to clarify. I, I do believe that. I do, I do believe that, that a man can disqualify himself with sin. But what I want to clarify, because sometimes you just take things so for granted that you really don't cover them when you teach it because you figure everybody else takes it for granted too. But if you don't cover it, then I don't want anybody to question what I believe after that. I do believe a man can sin and can disqualify himself from the office of a bishop. I, I believe there's sins in there. If he's got small children, even his wife and his children can disqualify him if his house is not run well in order. But I do not believe he can lose his salvation. Nor do I believe that he can never preach again. I believe it's like a prodigal son. He comes back to the father. And he repents of his mistake. He finds himself where he is and asks for forgiveness. I believe the Father is always waiting with open arms. So I do not believe that he has disqualified himself for life and that he could never come back. But I do believe there are some steps that would be necessary before God would restore him back in, in a pulpit. But what I, what I thought about as I was thinking about later, I, I don't want somebody to, to think that what I'm saying is that gift to be taken away and he can never get it back. Um, that God, God's grace is way beyond that. God's mercy is well past that. God's mercy is unlimited. There are no boundaries to God's mercy. There are no 
holdbacks. There are no withdrawals to it. It is the unlimited mercy of God. It is one of the greatest attributes that we can be thankful for that God has, and that is a, a forever, never-ending uh, mercy. So some, sometimes, if you leave out parts of the story, I just don't, I, I thought about it later after I got home. I thought, well, we covered that pretty good. I covered what I wanted to cover in that, well, somebody's called to preach, to give the call to our repentance, so they always have to preach, and we looked at that. That's not even the context of what they're talking about. The context is coming down from two verses further up and what he's dealing with. But by the same token, just, just like you and I as Christians, we can backslide and fall away from God. We can get out of church. We can lose the relationship with the Father. Matter of fact, we can go back to living like we ain't never darkened the doors of a church. But if you find yourself in the hogmire and you realize who you are, you're a child of the King, and that is my Father, and you make that U-turn and go back to the Father's house, and you plan your speech all the way back. Father, I have sinned against you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. He's going to be waiting with open arms. We, can't, we can run from God, but we can't never run past his reach. Amen? All we got to do is turn around take one step back, and he's always there waiting. Shelter safe within the arms of God. Right, brother? Never leave us. Never, never forsake us. So tonight, Paul takes a completely different approach in the letter I, I i don't i can't help but believe that a lot of these letters are not one time sit down write a letter start to finish sign it seal it roll it up put your wax seal on it hand it to my their, in their day mailman and send it all to the church where it went i can't help but believe that many of these letters were written over several days possibly even several weeks and the reason why is because of the Sometimes change of directions in the letter. And that's what we have here. He's been dealing with a lot of different things. He, he's dealt with a lot of different situations. But, but here he turns and, and he begins to deal with, with personal convictions and personal callings. He's looked at a lot of different things. He, he dealt with the Gentile Christian. Matter of fact, when the book first started, he dealt with personal callings. When we first started in Roman, he's dealing on a personal level. And then he began to deal with, with the Jews some. And, and he made it clear to them that um, he is the apostle sent to the Gentiles, and he dealt with baptism for a portion. But then he got off and he began dealing specifically with the Jews for a while and dealing them and making sure that they understand that they know that promise is not broken, it's just delayed. And that's important for all of us to know um, because the same is true with us. We can get in God's way, and we can delay an answer to a promise, but we cannot cause God to not answer a promise. If the promise is made, the promise has to be and will be kept by God. So Paul's made it clear that he's apostle to the Gentile. But here in chapter 12, he begins dealing specifically with the Christian as a believer. Paul deals with how the Christian is changed. Anybody changed? Anybody thankful that old things passed away? Behold, all things became new. So he deals with how people are changed. But the believer is also challenged. Um, I'm not the only one that making the change wasn't a piece of cake. There were some old habits to break. There were some old places not to go to. There was, it just is what it is. There were some old people not to talk to anymore. Because when you try to tell them what happened, they didn't get it. And all they want to do is pull you back. And the only thing they do is leave them alone. So in the change, there are some challenges. So really the, the theme for the remainder of this letter to the church at Rome here is living in the gospel. Simply put, it is practice what you preach. If you say, I go to church, and you say you're a Christian, then we ought to live like it. So the last part here is divided into two parts. Paul talks about the laws of the Christian life, 
But then he talks about the laws of Christian love. We can't have or live a Christian life if we do not have a Christ-like love. We have to have a Christ-like love for everybody sitting in this building. We have to have a Christ-like love for everybody that comes in here on Sunday morning. We have to have a Christ-like love for everybody that comes in, drops their children off, and goes back out. And we babysit for a couple hours or an hour on Wednesday night, and they never darken the doors. I'm not casting a rock in their direction. I'm thankful that they let us raise their children and teach them something about the mercies of God. But I would love to see them stop in and enjoy church sometimes instead of passing through. But we love them just the same. Our job is we can't, we can't live a Christ-like life if we don't have a Christ-like love for the one that's driving by right now laughing about those Jesus freaks that are in their own church on Wednesday night. Our love for all of them has to be the same. We have to have a Christ-like love if we're going to live a Christ-like life. He says in chapter 12, he starts out with Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for I say through grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Father, thank you so much for this letter. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge, God. Thank you for the beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you. Father, will you help us, God, to make that our heart's desire, our lifelong dream, more than a desire more than a dream, will you help every one of us to make it a reality, Father? May we be exactly what you want us to be, nothing more and nothing less. May we live in that place called the center of your perfect will that you might be pleased with us and that you might use us while we're on this earth, earth to reach a lost and dying world. We love you, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word beseech there, of course, means to strongly encourage. Paul says, I am strongly encouraging this to you. It means to implore or to invoke someone. Paul is trying to make sure the importance of what he's trying to tell you, to invoke, to instill, to put it into us. And then he inspired by saying, therefore, and of course we looked at that a lot of times. We know when we see the word therefore, we have to look and see what's it there for. Well, Paul has been encouraging the Christians in the early passages of the letters we just looked at. He's, he's been calling the Jews more and more to repent. It's his desire to see his, his fellow Hebrew nation saved, to see him come to Christ. He has explained the gospel. He's explained the gift of God. He's explained the necessity of salvation. He's explained the purpose of the baptism. And now, therefore, because he's explained all that, we get to this point in the letter. Because of all that, brethren... By the mercies of God. Mercy is that never-ending attribute. We are, if we don't never have anything else to feel like saying thank you for, if we're having the worst day of our life and everything is upside down and everything is wrong and you're just trying to think of something to thank God for, you can thank God for mercy if you can't think of anything else. Because we don't deserve it, but he freely, openly, and abundantly pours it out. It is truly without measure, without end. It is without limitations. He just continues to abundantly pour out mercy. Paul says, by the never-ending mercies of God, he said, I beg you to present your bodies. 
not your lip service. Not your Sunday morning body that's different than your Monday morning body. He said, I, I'm begging you to present your, your bodies. Not your, when you're around other Christian body, that's different when you're around non-Christian body. But, but present your whole body, your entire body to the glory of God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Surrender everything to Christ. That Christ might live in us and reign in us and rule in us and live through us so that others might see Christ. Throughout the entire Old Testament, we, we saw the sacrifice. Paul is saying here, I beg you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Man, that, that is of an extreme importance because that's the 180 degree from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word sacrifice meant death, period. If there's going to be a sacrifice, something had to die. So what man had to do was either sacrifice a bull or a goat or a, a lamb or two turtle doves. They had to sacrifice what they could afford. And that sacrifice was a temporary atonement, a temporary covering for sin. So the word sacrifice in the Old Testament meant something had to die. But the word sacrifice that Paul here in the New Testament means that something has to live. Jesus Christ has already died. Amen. He has already paid the dead in full. He's already paid a price we couldn't afford. He's already covered a debt that, that we could have never covered. Death is settled. It's done. He has died for us, and he has defeated death, hell, and the grave, walked out of the grave on the third day so that we might have life. So the word sacrifice makes a change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It no longer means something's got to die. If we're going to sacrifice ourselves, it means something's got to live, and that something is us. We are to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. God's not looking for anything else to die. That was all settled. That was all settled at the cross. What God is looking for is for you and I to live, not straddling the fence, not walking close enough to hold on the fence so we can jump back over if we need to. God is telling us through the hand of his great apostle, I need you to get on over the fence and give me everything you got. I need to have complete control over everything that is there. That is our reasonable service. The word reasonable comes from the Greek word. It is logikos. It simply means rational. It's just rational that you would surrender your body to the Father who sent his Son to pay the price, who washed away our sins and wrote our name in the Lamb's Book of Life and has given us an eternal place and is at the Father's house preparing mansions for us. It's just rational. It's just common sense. It just only makes sense. It's where we get our word that logikos. It's where we get our English word logical. It's just logical. There, there's no other logical explanation to anything that we would do if we truly are saved and we truly are a child of God. It's just logical that we ought to live like it. Paul says that when we look at what Christ has done for us and we look at the great price that's paid, the size of the debt, we look at the ultimate sacrifice of the cross, there, there is no other logical, reasonable thing for us to do but live our lives as a sacrifice to the glory of God. He goes on in verse number 2. He says, be not conformed to this world. We've already been there, haven't we? 
but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul wrote the letter to the church at Corinthians in the first letter, chapter 6, verse 9. He said, Know ye not that the unrighteousness shall, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That means there was a time in our lives when one of those words described, at least one of those words described us. And such were, I, I, sometimes I wonder, I, I started to do a word study, but I really didn't. I wonder why it says were, were, such were some of you. I wonder why I didn't just go ahead and say all. Anybody in here didn't fit that bill before you got saved? Such were some of you, but, I love the but, but ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified. Justified, never done it. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In the second letter that he wrote to Corinth, he goes on kind of with that same line of teaching. He says in chapter 2 or chapter 6, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? None. When you turn on light, darkness has got to get out of town. It can't stay. There's no communion between the two. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God? And that's what we are. We are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit lives in us. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? He said, man, you, this is the temple of God. What does that have to do with golden calves and wooden trinkets? If you are the temple of living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then we have the text that Emerge uses for, for their main scripture, verse number 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I'll be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Such were some of ye. We, we were all in that list of extortioners and idolaters and everything that he put up there. But now we're washed. My past is washed away. And one person in here appreciated that enough to say amen. My past is washed away. I have been cleansed. From everything that I did, things that we look back that, that we're now ashamed of. But he says that we are sanctified. That word sanctified means to be set apart. That means that you and I, on the day we were saved, we have been set apart for an holy use. That's what the Word of God says, set apart for an holy use. We are set apart by God to be used by God to reach a lost and dying world to bring glory to God. We are sanctified. We are set apart in the hand of God to be used by Him. Therefore, we're not to live in communion and harmony with those who are still living out there in the world. Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. If our heart's desire is set on the things of God and the things of above, we won't be desiring all this worldly stuff. We are to present our bodies in such a way 
that the world sees Christ in us in everything that we do so that we're no longer conformed to the image of this world. We once used to fit into the image of this world. We used to could go in some bad places and fit right in. But now when we go in, we are a light and we no longer fit in the dark. When we went in those dark places and we were darkness filled with darkness, we fit in because we were full of darkness. But now that we're filled with the light, those dark places aren't where we're to be. And when we go in, we're not going to fit in. If you fit in in those places, you need to get saved. We, we can't go back into those places. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that what we used to be is dead and gone. That's how we prove what is good and acceptable. That, that is how we show the perfect will of God. That is how we make God smile. Anybody in here have a desire in your heart to make God smile? Wouldn't it be awesome to just want, to know that there's one thing that we did in our life when we stand before God? If it was just that one thing that, that made God smile, that made God happy, something that we did. So what Paul tells us, we can make God smile every day. If we surrender our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service, Every day we can make God smile. Wouldn't that be a blessing? But then Paul says we've got to be careful not to be high-minded. We've got to be careful. Don't get to thinking too highly of yourself. Don't get to thinking you're all that in a bag of chips. You've got everything. Don't, don't start thinking it's like we've done everything because it's not us. It's Christ in us. It wasn't us that got us saved. It's what Christ did for us. All we did was reach out and took what was offered to us for free. We haven't done anything, and anything that we do now is Christ in us. I can't do all things. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Without Christ, the Bible says that I can do nothing. So it, it is Christ working in us. Be careful that we don't start thinking that it's us doing anything, that it's us accomplishing anything. Paul and I was talking about he's alive. I don't really have time to preach, but I'm going to stop for a minute anyway. We were talking about he's alive, and this is a very different year. We build the buildings. We start practicing second week of January. We do practices all day, all different ones. And I'll be honest, by the time we do he's alive, we could do it in our sleep. By the time we come here, we know every cue to every song. We know when we're supposed to say what, where we're supposed to be, when we're supposed to go over there, who we're supposed to get out of the way, what the murmurings are going to be, what's going to happen over there. We've got it memorized so that by the time we get to He's Alive, we've got it down pat, and there's a little bit of confidence in ourselves that this is going to be good. We can do this. But we're going to be in a little trouble this year. Practices are going great, I'll give you that. But we don't even have the crowds up here until the last two weeks of practice. We basically are only going to practice two weeks and pull off something that we've been practicing 12 and 14 weeks for. I don't know that's a bad thing. Because I don't believe there's a personal walk in here with one of them Jerusalem costumes on thinking they got this down pat this time. We'll walk in here knowing that we need God to show up in us, help us remember some things because we but it's changing so much in so many places that we don't go. And there's new songs, there's different things, and even things, some of the things that we've always said, we're still saying, but they're at different times. So things are happening different, and there's only going to be two weeks for everybody to come together and practice that, and then we're going to do it. He's alive. And that's just all in an effort to try to protect the cast 
from COVID and the things that's going on, do the best we can to protect. But what it does is it keeps you from being able to go boastfully into he's alive, saying, look what we can do. No, you can't. Matter of fact, if you want to know how many of you have been in he's alive and you, you felt the power of God move in this place during he's alive, whether you came and watched it or whether you was in it, that is the anointing. That is what the Holy Spirit of God does through us. How many of you have ever gone back and watched it on video? That's just Hoganese. It's just not the same. There's a difference in the anointing. So I have great expectations for he's alive this year. I expect the power of God to move in a mighty way because I think we will come having to depend solely on him. Verse number 3, I say, The grace is given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. Don't overestimate who we are. Don't, don't get to thinking that we're anything special because we're saved and, and we have the favor of God and the power of God on our lives and he uses this church and he uses each one of us as individuals to do things. Don't start thinking that we've got it all figured out. Don't start thinking that we're above sin. Don't start thinking I've been walking with God long enough now that I'm not going to sin because as soon as a man says, I'm not going to sin, you just sinned. You won't make it through the day. For, for anybody, don't point somebody out. Talk about the sins that somebody else did. You see something, it's a horrible sin. Destroy their life or the family. And you're like, man, they were a Christian in the church. How could they have done it? I would never do that. Prepare yourself. Because that's your next sin. No matter how atrocious it may be. When you say, I never will, you just did. It's coming. We won't by the grace of God. If we keep our face in the book and, and understand that everything that happens in our life is Christ in us. It's, it's when we do anything outside of the will of God, that's because at that time we were not surrendered and we went back to the flesh. And we let the flesh be the guide. So when, when we start thinking above ourselves, we're just setting up for trouble. Luke chapter 18. Jesus used the, the parable of the Pharisees and the publican to... To, to talk about kind of a description of such a thing when the two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He's telling God this garbage. The publican standing afar off would not so much as lift a, not so much that lift as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Paul is echoing that parable of teaching right here. Don't get to thinking, present your body as a living sacrifice, and God's going to use you to do great things, but don't let that go to your head. That, that's what he's summing up here for us. Present our bodies a, a living sacrifice, but then in all humility, there should never come a day in our life that we're not amazed that God would even be mindful of me. There should never be a day in the life of a Christian that it shouldn't just blow our mind that God loves us. 
There's, there should never be a day in our Christian life. I don't care the, the most important thing God ever used us to do. Multitude of people got saved. Maybe whatever happened, happened was a great thing. At that moment, it ought to blow our mind that God cares anything about us at all. When we look back at all the things that we've done and see the grace, we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Verse number four, he goes on, says, we have many members in one body. All members have not the same office. Everybody is given something, but nobody is given everything. I am nothing without you. You are nothing without each other. We, we are nothing without the family. That's one of the issues, and I sure don't have time to keep getting off into the preaching things. That's one of the problems with COVID and the stay-at-home church and all that right now. We need each other. Amen. We need the church. We need the fellowship. We need the communion. We need to rub against one another. We need the affection. We need the strength. We need the support. We need the encouragement. We need it. In the stay-at-home church, I'm sorry, it's killing a lot of Christians. Uh, some of them are doing it because they have to, and they're starving to death and would love to come to church. But a lot of them are using it as a crutch, and they are dying spiritually every week. We need each other. Every one of us has something to offer, but none of us has everything to offer. I'm nothing without all of you. And you're nothing without each other. This church is nothing until we become one. We are the body of Christ. And what good can the eye do if it doesn't have the rest of the body? What good can the hand do if it doesn't have the rest of the body? What good can the foot do if it doesn't have the rest of the body? That's what we are. That's what he says. We are all one. We're all part of the same body. And we are to surrender everything. When we surrender and we come together as one, that's when God can do a mighty work through us as a whole. God can move mountains if we just come together and put the whole body fitly joined together that God might use it. Surrender everything. We surrender our whole body, a living sacrifice. That's when God works in us. That's when God works through us. There's so many different parts of the body. We have, we have our senses. But if a man does not surrender his senses, he surrenders everything else, but he keeps his senses. Well, he may not to come to church. He may not want to come to church because well, it's always too hot in there. Those are senses. He, he may not want to come because he likes to sit over there or right there and that vent blows, and it won't sit anywhere else in the church, but it's too cold right there, so, so it doesn't come. Those are, are senses. Well, I, I don't, the music's too loud, the music's too soft. I don't like that style of music. I don't like that kind of music. I don't, th those are senses. Those are personal desires. When you're saying, I can't because I don't, and I don't like, and I won't, that is because that area of the body is not surrendered. The, Paul says we're to surrender everything even our senses. A lot of people, they don't want to surrender their intellect. They think they're smart. It doesn't take you long to figure out. Sometimes some of them are, they think they're better than us. Y'all have not ever met any of them, have you? They, they, they think they can get by on their intellect. There's no reason to come to Sunday school. They already know no more than most of the teachers in this church anyway. There, there's no reason for them to come to Bible studies while they should be teaching the Bible studies. 
Their, their intellect, they have not surrendered their intellect. They, they know so much, they begin to admire their own intellect. That is a part of the body that is not sacrificed to God. It is living on our own, and therefore we've not surrendered, or those people have not surrendered those things. People with a strong will. We, we need to surrender our will. You know, in, anybody in here, when you got saved, well, there's some habits to break. Y'all don't let me hang out myself. I want to see some hands. If you don't have no habits to break, lie. Raise your hand. I'll give you permission right now. You ask for forgiveness when we get done. There were some habits to break. Some people have a stronger will than others. Some people. I had an uncle several years ago, but not Christian reasons, health reasons. They told me I had to quit smoking. He quit smoking. He bought a pack, he put it in his shirt pocket, and every time he ever saw him, he had to pack it in his shirt pocket. But that was a strong will. Vocabulary is a big deal for people that are lost and not saved. And people with a strong will can learn how to control their vocabulary. I knew how to control mine. I promise you out on the street I had a different vocabulary than the one I had when I was home around my mom, and that's obvious by the set of teeth that I have. A strong will, you, you can hold things down, you can manipulate, and people begin to put their trust in their strong will. But, but it wasn't a strong will. It was the power of God that helped to stop using foul language. It's the power of God that helped a man stop drinking and bar hopping at night and coming home in the wee hours of the morning with his broken family there and he staggers into the door, yells at people and beats his children. That's the Holy Spirit of God. That's not just a strong will. It, it is the Holy Spirit of God that helps someone overcome sins like adultery and stepping outside of their marital relationship and brings them back into a sound mind. It, it is to surrender everything. When Paul says we are to surrender our bodies, that is everything. That is body, that is mind, that is soul, that is intellect, that is senses. We shouldn't try to take control over any part of our body. We are to surrender everything to God. We surrender our complete bodies to God. Then we can be used effectively by God. But until we're willing to Surrender everything, physical, sensual, spiritual, mental, to we're willing to surrender everything, we're not fully prepared to be used by God. God can use us for bits and pieces. God can tie us up, He can still use us for things, but we're not set to be everything that God has in store for us to be. But when we have surrendered our entire body as a living sacrifice, that's when we'll show the fruit of the Spirit. If our entire body is surrendered by the mercies of God so that we are empowered by God, so that we are used by God, then the only fruit we can put off is good fruit because Christ is now working in us and through us. To fully surrender the entire body is a completely transformed life. Not, not we got saved and we transformed most of it but held on to this little bit. It's surrendering everything. We are too... There's, two, there's a render and a member. We are to surrender everything and remember that it's not us. You've you got to reach back to the whole message right there. We are to surrender everything, our bodies, and remember that whatever God does, it's not us. It's Christ working in us. 
It is God, verse number 4, God that hath dealt, well, this is the end of verse 3, hath dealt every man to the measure of faith. Verse 4 says, For we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members of another. Whatever your gift is, it is truly important. You don't have to have the gift of teaching. You don't have to have the gift of being Jesus in the Easter play. You don't have to have the gift of being a singer or a piano player, any type of musician. Your gift, everybody's gift is of equal importance. Find one part on your body that you want to get rid of right now because you don't need it. Come up here and cut it off and leave it laying here. Anybody got any body parts, inside or outside, visible or invisible? You got any that you don't need? Bring it on up here and just cut it off and leave it off. Y'all got it? Y'all don't act like y'all want to get rid of nothing. Y'all want to keep everything? Why? It takes it all, doesn't it? It takes the whole body complete to function and do what the body does every day. Same thing's true with the church. There is no body that we can just put out and say we don't need them. We need everybody. Everybody's gift is different. Everybody's gift is necessary. And for us to be the church that God can use to move mountains, everybody's got to be all in. Everybody's got to be surrendered. Everybody in this room, everybody out there watching on live stream, everybody watching the recording later on YouTube, everybody that is in the family of God, and certainly right here, everybody that is in the family of Faith Baptist Church, we need you and you need us. We need everybody to be what God wants us to be. It's God that put us together. Visitors come right here, they'll tell you, hey, man, I'm so glad to have you. I'd love to have you join Faith Baptist Church. I'd love to have you right here. I've told them I don't know why anybody go to church anywhere else. don't make no sense to me. I don't know why the rest of them's even open. Seems like everybody all just go right here. But here's what I know. I know God's got a place for you. And if this is it, I hope you plug in and get to work right here. And if this ain't, I hope you go find where God wants you so we don't get in your way and you don't get in ours. That's a great thing to tell visitors to church, ain't it? I believe it with all my heart. I believe God's got a place for everybody. The ones that are here are fitly joined together by God to do what we're supposed to do. And, and I'm not going to add a third arm on it, even though all the time I wish I had three or four hands. I'm not going to go to the doctor and have them put on because it'd just be in the way. What we want is what God puts here to be what God puts us to be together but it takes all of us we all have to be together doing our part so Paul is dealing specifically with our relationship with the father with the complete surrender I am out of time or they're going to send kids in here we um Paul goes on here and he, and he deals he's been dealing with our relationship with Christ surrender our bodies to live in sacrifice that is our relationship with Christ and he he also deals a good bit about our relationship with each other and I know we've dabbled into that a little bit here but we're going to leave off right there lord willing we'll pick back up there next wednesday night and talk about our relationship with each other and the important the importance of it not just surrendering our body a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto god which is your reasonable service but when we when we make that surrender god's going to tie us all together in ways that we never imagined in in ways that that we couldn't do our own if we had to but when we become that church and we become that one fitly joined together God can change the world. I said God can change the world. It doesn't take a whole bunch. He did it with 11 barefooted men on dirt roads and no internet. All it takes is a group of surrendered people fitly joined together 
surrendered for the glory of God. Father, thank you so much, God. Lord, thank you for loving us in spite of us. Thank you for countless, wonderful, undeserved blessings that are freely poured out on us. Thank you for mercy that truly is without measure. There is no way to measure the bounds of your mercy, of your mercy God. I, Lord, all I can tell you is thank you. Father, I thank you for this word, for this book. God, I pray you'd help each one of us in this place, each one on live stream, everybody hears this message. God, I pray you'd help us, Father, to fully surrender our lives, a reasonable service unto you. God, I pray for the members of Faith Baptist Church. God, I pray you'd unite us as one, one strong body, one like-minded, one group pulling together in the same direction, holding on to the same rope. God, I remember when you had Dr. Randy Rye right here in the pulpit of this church, and he preached on hold of the rope. And we all lined up down here and grabbed hold of the rope. Some people have let go of the rope, God. Lord, I pray you'd help us to line up, and we'd all grab hold of the rope and pull in one direction, God. And that's, that's pulling with you. May you be our strength and our source. May you bind us together. I'm asking you to use us to do a mighty work that souls might be saved. We love you, God. You've been good to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.